be here. It's a privilege to be here, and I want to thank uh, Pastor Dwight for, for uh, having me. And uh, it's going to be a continuation of the July 4th uh, message. Uh, July 4th, uh, for those of you that were able to, to be there, you may recall that it had to do with Peru. We, we gave an update on Peru and how things were going there. And then uh, a little bit of a lead-in to today, uh, talking about missions and gave some facts and figures. And, and uh, I appreciate uh, some of the follow-up questions that people were asking me about uh, the possibility of books. Um, we mentioned that uh, we have a project going there. We have 80, about 80 churches with about 80 pastors in our little area there in uh, what would be considered south-central Peru uh, in the mountains and, and valleys and so on. And we're trying to get a book into their hands. And the book is uh, from the, the B series with Warren Wiersbe. Uh, and it's a commentary on all the New Testament books. He has a, a be this, uh, be vigilant, or be faithful, or be kind. That he titles each one of his, uh, as that he titles each book of the New Testament. And there's a commentary with all the books of the New Testament there, and we're working to get that. So I appreciate your your uh, just your your asking me about it and uh, enabling it to move forward. Uh, and then I was going to make a have have a little joke with Kurt saying uh, we we got together this week and we coordinated his Sunday school with my message and it's kind of like a seamless move from Sunday school to this because you know Vince picked up on it real quick that some of the things that were said in Sunday school are just so absolutely appropriate for this this message on missions and uh, so uh, some of the things he said I was writing I was writing some additional notes down. Uh, as he was talking, and I very much appreciated that. Uh, I'd like to open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to go ahead and and uh, get started. Lord, thank you for this time together. Uh, thank you for the privilege to be in the pulpit uh, every time. Uh, it's an honor to, to be able to share God's word, and, uh, and I thank, uh, I'm so thankful for that. Lord, go before us. Uh, my, my words, the, the hearts of the folks, uh, I just trust that this time talking about missions... Uh, will be edifying and uh, just simply God-honoring. We ask this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, it, this is a continuation of, of July 4th. And I, and I want to talk about uh, missions kind of in general. And so I, I've chosen to talk about five aspects of missions. Now, remember, it's not you know, the five aspects of missions uh, as if there is just five uh, but these are aspects of missions that um, that are important, that are that are significant, and they may be more towards the uh, the theological. You you could talk about aspects of missions like you know the relationship of missionaries to their local church, or the missionary called, or, or the missionary's heart, or you know the training of you know, training of missionaries. You could go tons of directions, and. Um, and they could be different aspects of missions. But the ones that I'm going to look at today are up there. And, and I'm going to concentrate on the first three, three this morning and the second two this evening. And so, once again, you know, these are not the, uh, the you know, they're not the five aspects of missions. They're just five that, that I've chosen to share with you. And, and I said this on July 4th, that uh, these messages are a little bit self-serving. Uh, but I, I hope not in a bad way, because um, I had been asked to uh, create a, a standalone missions class at our at our little seminary there in Utabamba, Peru, um, on missions. We we presently teach missions uh, in a class called uh, Missions, based on the Book of Acts, and then we study all 28 chapters of Acts, and it's a wonderful study. But um, it's pretty, you know, it's a pretty intense look at Paul's missionary journeys and, and others. And so you don't have time to get into some of the, uh, the, uh, the other areas of missions that, that we can get into in a standalone class. So I guess what I'm saying is, as I started to prepare that class, um, I was asked to, 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 do, to do the pulpit supply and kind of just melded them together. So as I was trying to study about missions and put together this class, I'm thinking, oh, man, you know, preparing a message, you got to go, you got to put in some time and effort into it. And, and so this is helping me both uh, for my class and, of course, to prepare for these messages. So as I said, it's a little self-serving, but I hope uh, it's, it's done in a God-honoring way. Now, on... Um, on July 4th, I mentioned 
I'm going to say, I'm going to repeat some things, but do it really quickly where I, I spent more time uh, because it kind of sets the stage. Uh, and setting the stage, I want to say this about modern missions. Modern missions really, uh, there's, there's three eras. When you study modern missions, whether you're a theologian or you know, a missiologist or a person who just likes to figure out missions and read about it, there's three eras uh, of missions, modern missions. Uh, The first one is 1793 to 1865. William Carey is the one that gets credit for initiating that. William Carey was an absolutely uh, wonderful God-honoring man that, among other things, he gave the quote, expect great things from God, do great things for God. That motivated, that that saying alone motivated a lot of people to to get into missions. He has this little book, and I didn't know it existed until just a couple months ago when I got into this. But he has this little book uh, that's just, just not very big. It's one of those small books like that. Uh, almost looks like a thick track. But it has a title that is very, uh, very long but makes the point. Here's the title of the booklet. It's called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. And that booklet triggered modern missions. I remember reading, and, and there's more to it than just this, but somebody said that this little booklet was to Protestant missions that, um, that, uh, the 95, that Luther and the 95 Theses there on Wittenberg was to the Reformation. And if you know anything about the Reformation, you know the Reformation is just a, a mind-boggling milestone in the history of, of, of Protestantism. And, and so William... William Carry initiated the first error of what's called modern missions. The whole point of it is this. He took, and his work, his initiative, took the, took the gospel to every coastline of every continent. Now, not very deep, but he went to the coastline, and other people you know, followed his, and then went to the coastlines. Now, the second error took, took missions to the mid-continent. And that was from... 1865 to, nine, uh, to, uh, to 1974, and that was spearheaded by a man named Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Missions, and inland is just what it implies. He took the gospel inland, and his, his work triggered the, the, uh, the second stage or the second era of modern missions by getting people to go to missions in places that they had never been before. And uh, as, a, as a side note, uh, Wendy and I are part of Baptist Mid-Missions, and the founder of Baptist Mid-Missions back in 1920, Charles Haas, he began, he began mission work for Baptist Mid-Missions into inland Africa. So he was one of the first to go into inland Africa with other uh, pioneering missionaries, and, and that's how Baptist mid Missions gets their name because they went to the mid-continent, and that was their goal in the beginning. And now it's, it's, it's kind of morphed into you know, missionaries going uh, you know, all over the place. And so the second error is to get missionaries to go inland, to go further uh, into more challenging places. And now, we, now the third one is this. This is where we're living. This is what I'm going to be talking about, uh, as time permits, is era number three. And that's 1974 to, to present. And, and to, to summarize it, uh, I'll read Revelation 5.9 because it answers and it describes it wonderfully. Revelation 5.9 says this. And they sang a new song saying, Ye are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And then, then here's the point. Here's the, whole, here's the whole point. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So around 1974, the emphasis on missions was now not to specific geographic groups like, you know, go to this country and this coastland or go to inland to here or, you know, it was to reach unreached people groups. It was to reach a people group. And because people said, well, scripture talks about reaching people groups and all these people groups are going to be in heaven. And so why shouldn't we be trying to reach all the people groups? So that has become the, the mindset. And, and that's kind of what I said in July 4th. And then the last thing that I said that I, I, that I wanted to repeat because it's, it's noteworthy is this. 
There's an interesting book called The Next Christian done by Philip Jenkins, where he discusses something called the great reality. Now, the great reality that it, it, it's the context of missions, and, and here's the simplified version of his book, where it says, and, and you can find this in other areas too, is that the center of gravity of missions is, is moving. It's, well, it really has moved. Um, and some of you probably realize this or you sense it uh, without really even, maybe even knowing it. The great reality is simply this, that the, 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 the epicenter of missions has moved from the United States and Europe to the south and to the east. We are no longer the epicenter of missions. And, um, you know, that's a discussion in itself and it's, it's you know, it's, it's sad in itself. But that's a reality. You know, places that were once considered mission fields are now centers of Christian influence. And in our major missionary sending forces in the world, most of the global church is now in the majority population world, like Latin America and Africa and Asia. So there used to be the saying, from the West to the rest, no more. That, that, that's not, that's, that's not a, that doesn't exist. It's changed. It's really from everywhere to everywhere. I mean, there's still strong missions coming from the States. Yes, absolutely. But you would be amazed... Uh, even in our little area of Peru, uh, in, we, we live a, in a valley that's at 900 feet and then the Andes Mountains. In our little area, uh, I'm not sure exactly the range, a couple hundred miles, there's 80 little wonderful God-honoring churches that you folks would just be totally comfortable there. Except they speak Quechua or Spanish. But, uh, but seriously, <laughs> doctrine-wise, you would fit right in there. And, and, and when I first went there, I was kind of like, you know, not amazed, but thinking, God, this is, this is tremendous. I, I remember going to a, um, to a Bible study with Ken Lovell, the veteran missionary there, was kind of showing me around many years ago. And we went to a little one room, you know, it was the kitchen of a house, and they were doing a Bible study there. And those people took out their Bible, and they were sharing things, and they just loved the Lord. And, and then, but one of the things that got my attention is, as I was sitting there, I don't know if, if Wendy went with me or not on this one, but um, something that's big in, um, especially rural Peru, are guinea pigs. Everybody raises guinea pigs. And so there were guinea pigs that would, every once in a while, zip across the dirt floor, you know, while we were having our Bible study. And I just thought, you know, this is the way it is. But my point, I guess my point was, they love the Lord just like I love the Lord. And just like the way we, we worship here. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little different connotation. I wanted to say this uh, before we get into the aspects. One last thing is Brazil has replaced South Korea in second place as the country sending out the most evangelical missionaries. Uh, but also South Africa, India, and the Philippines are also very active in sending out missionaries. Um, so, here's the little summary to all that. Anyone with a desire to study contemporary Christian missions must confront how our world is changing and what these changes imply for the, for the practice of Christian missions. With that being said, here are the, here's the first aspect of modern missions that I'd like to share with you. Uh, and it's called the root of modern missions. And it's going to take us to... It's going to take us to... The Old Testament, as we as we look at the uh, as we look at the Old Testament, even though we don't see Israel and, you know, and I know this is a discussion in itself, but we don't see Israel producing missionaries in a cross cultural sense. Unless you want to think of Jonah, you know, as being a cross cultural missionary. And and I don't think we do. Uh, But Israel was not a a send them out like the New Testament church was missionary country. It, It just it just didn't happen. But. In the Old Testament, we do see the roots of, of modern missions. And we're going to try to point that, that out uh, this morning. The point that we see in the, in the Old Testament in many shapes and forms is that God intends for his glory to fill the earth 
as the waters cover the sea, just as New Testament missions seeks to spread God's glory throughout the world. That has been something that's been true from day one, so to speak, and to this very day. God, we want to see God's glory spread all over the world, and that was the case in the Old Testament too. Now, here is just some quick verses that make that point. You may have your own verses that that speak to God's glory, filling the world, filling the earth, filling the globe. But these are three that, that I wanted to quickly share. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Psalm 72, 19. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, that's, that's an Old Testament uh, point that needs to be made. And it's true for New Testament missions. That's what we want to do as missionaries. We want to get God's word and God's glory all over the world. And so God's desire, and it should be the desire of every believer, is to see his glory spread throughout the world. And that's what missions is all about. We also know that the Old Testament prepared for and it predicted the blessings of the nations through Israel and through Israel's Messiah. Christian missions finds its roots in the Old Testament, but as we all know, it doesn't begin to flower until the coming of the Messiah. And then it it, it takes off. In looking at the Old Testament to help us see the roots of Christian missions, we can learn from the Old Testament truths about how God wanted the nations of the world to see and understand Israel. We know God gave Israel many opportunities to be a holy nation to the world, which would have shown God's own glory throughout the world, but they repeatedly failed. But we can learn from these failures and see the original intent of God with his chosen people. And so we are familiar uh, Vince read the verses this morning from uh, Matthew 28, uh, 11 through 20, specifically 18 through 20, which is considered the most succinct and explicit of the various uh, Great Commission passages of the New Testament. But when theologians, as I said, and when missionary scholars get together, they talk about the very roots of missions, it takes us back to the book of Genesis. And if you can, you know, if you take the time to see that, it, it causes things to tie together for you very well. And so, within the context of the Old Testament, we have things called the first great commission of the Old Testament. Now, it's not something that you, you probably learned in Sunday school, because I certainly didn't. And it, it's not something that I have been very real familiar with. But you find this in, in, in readings where... People want to see how the Old Testament dovetailed into missions in the New Testament. They use terminology like, here's the first great commission of the Old Testament. Now, it's put in quotes. You know, you won't find that uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, but, you, you, well, you don't find that in, in the New Testament either, where, where it specifically uses that verbiage. But, but the point is clearly made. And so this is the first great commission of the Old Testament. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It says, and it reminds us of this, that to be fruitful and multiply, and in doing so, we were going to be spreading God's image throughout the world. That's missions in in, in a sense. It's not New Testament missions, but, but think about it as you read these verses. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female, created he them. And then here's the missions part. I know you've read those verses numerous times and and have had them. But this is the missions part that sets the stage for uh, understanding the roots of of missions from the Old Testament. And God blessed them. And he said unto them, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it. And then he told them, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God is telling Adam and Eve this. To be fruitful, to, be, to multiply, and have dominion over all this creation. 
And so in creating men and women in his image and after his likeness, God intended his image bearers to image him in creation. They were, you and I, they were to be a reflection of, of God. That is to represent his likeness. And so the fundamental expression of God's likeness that we read, we just read in this passage is for the man and a woman to have dominion. That was the original idea because God himself is the sovereign ruler of all creation. Now, in exercising a benevolent and wise dominion over creation, Adam and Eve would have shown forth to the world what what God is like, what their God is like. When this understanding of the image of God is combined with the command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, it can be seen that from from the very beginning, God wanted his likeness, God wanted his image, his glory to fill the earth. So Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is seen as what's called, you know, in quotes, the first great commission of the Old Testament. And it was to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Uh, And to fill the earth. And in doing so, God's likeness, his image, his glory would also fill the earth. Now, now we also know the rest of the story where that didn't work. Uh, We we know that Adam and Eve failed in this commission. And that their offspring, rather than filling the earth, can be summarized in Genesis 6-5. Which simply says, and there's there's chapters on this. But I'm just going to read one verse. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So they didn't come through uh, and we know that. And so in seeing that they were wicked and they didn't follow through, God brought the flood. He, he, wanted, he wanted to wipe the slate clean, so to speak, and start again with Noah, Noah and his descendants. So, Adam and Eve failed, and we know that Noah and his descendants failed. And, and one of the uh, places that you can go to, and I know you've heard sermons on this, is you can go where it talks about in Genesis uh, chapter 11, uh, about the Tower of Babel. Um, mankind had a better idea. And I'm afraid that's what human beings have a tendency to do. We think we have a better idea than God does. And they thought they had a better idea. They wanted to all get together and kind of, you know, show that they're powerful, show that they could run the show. Uh, but God had other ideas. And, and so God forced mankind to spread across the earth. And, uh, and so, it, it for, for, so to speak, for man, uh, it backfired. And that brings us to the second great commission. So the first great commission was to be fruitful, multiply, and and spread my image and my glory throughout the world. Um, The second one was uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is that the seed of Abraham would be blessed, and in this blessing, God would be glorified. And I know uh, Pastor Dwight has preached on this in a little different context many times, and he has done, you know, a a wonderful job and a a much better job than than I could ever do. but my point is, this is in context of the roots of missions. This is the context of finding the roots of missions in the Old Testament. And so as you look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, think of Abram and think of what it says. It says, Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and, and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make, thee, make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse the him that curseth thee. And in these shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so, there's this divine summons uh, of Abram, and the promises to him are of great significance in God's intention to bless him, to bless his seed, and ultimately all the people of the world. And that's where, that's where we come in on. That's where we get involved too. And so we can ask these questions about Genesis 12, 1 through 3. As they're up there in front of you, we can ask these questions and they really, they really answer themselves. When... When read in light of both the immediate context as well as the first 11 chapters of Genesis, why would the Lord want to make of Abraham a great nation? 
So, you know, it's up there. And so the question is that we have to address in our mind, why would the Lord want to make Abraham, Abram, a great nation? That's verse 2, 12, 2. Why would the Lord want to bless Abraham and make his name great so, so that he would be a blessing? You know, why does God want Abraham to be a blessing? And then the third question in 12, 3, why would the Lord want to bless all the families of the earth in Abraham? Now, you know, if this was Sunday school or this was, you know, Discipleship 101 class, I know I'd have all kinds of people answering that question. But I get to answer it because I'm the teacher and it's there. It's right here in front of me. But uh, you know the answer. But God enters into a covenant with Abram and his descendants for the sake of his own name. The Lord wants to make Abraham into a great nation so that... The nation Israel will make God known in the world. Likewise, the Lord wants Abraham to be a blessing for all the families of the earth to be blessed in him so that the nations will praise the Lord as the God of might and the God of mercy and the God of power and as the only true God. And so simply put, God does fully intend to bless the people whom he has made, uh, whom he has made. But those blessings are designed to bring him the glory that only he deserves. So through Abraham, God was, was supposed to be glorified. And, and through us, God is supposed to be glorified. Through things that Turk, uh, Kurt talked about all this morning and that everybody responded to in so many wonderful ways. How we live our life, how we share the gospel message. So that was the second Great Commission of the Old Testament, which is basically that the seed of Abraham would be blessed, and in this blessing, God would be glorified. Here's the final, and the third. This is the the third and final great commission of the Old Testament. This is this is all a, a subset of the first aspect of missions that we're talking about. Now it's similar to number two, except that the onus, so to speak, is 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 on the established nation of Israel. As they are to be obedient. They're they're called to be obedient. They're called to be holy. So that the other nations would look at them and see a reflection of their holy God, which would bring glory to God. That's what God wanted the nation of Israel to do. And ultimately, He wants us to do that. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to live lives that when people look at our lives, or when people look at the nation of Israel, they would say, Oh, that God is a holy God, and that they would that He would be honored because of that. And in Deuteronomy four five through nine, we, we can see this. We can see this whole principle. It says this: Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, and ye should do so in the land whether ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? Now what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all, all this law which I have set before you this day? Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. And so the Old Testament clearly attests to the mission of God in the world. It's a mission to bring him glory. That's what we read about in the Old Testament. That God wants and deserves and is the only one that should get the glory through the people that he created. And then, as I've already mentioned, Christian missions finds its roots in the Old Testament. But it does not begin to flourish until the coming of the Messiah. Now, this brings us to another aspect. And like I said, you know, these are, these are aspects of, of modern missions. Uh, they're not the aspects. But this next one is, is pretty powerful too. Uh, as we think about this well-known passage of, of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You know, once again, think about that. And, and you could ask, I'll ask, you, I'll ask you the question. You know, and don't answer it. <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. But what makes, what makes the Great Commission great? 
And, and, and it's probably more than one answer, but I'm going to arrive at, at one that, I, that I'm going to conclude is, is maybe the best. And so, the greatness of, what, what, what is the greatness of the Great Commission? It, it's oftentimes, and I've seen this and I've read this kind of thing, you know, what, what makes the Great Commission great? It's sometimes people say, it's the magnitude of the task. You know, and because when you think about it, getting the gospel message to, you know, every people group in the whole world, it's, it's, it's an, from a human perspective, it's an overwhelming task. It's like, how in the world, you know, is there enough money in the world to do this? Is there enough people in the world to do this? Can God really do this? You know, I'm saying it very facetiously. The task of reaching every people group, every tribe and tongue is immense. But that's the kind of job God can do. He can do absolutely immense tasks that you and I can't do at all without him mobilizing us and and moving things forward. And so the the task can be completed and it's going to be completed. In fact, as we're going to get into uh, tonight... The mission, the, the task of missions cannot fail. It is an absolute, you could, I guess you could, you know, bet the farm on it and you would, you know, you wouldn't lose the farm. It is an absolute fact that missions can't fail. And, and we could, we're going to go to scripture to confirm that. The size of the task is not what ultimately makes the Great Commission great. What makes the Great Commission great is because of the greatness of the one who commissioned it. And so... If we reread, if we reread part of what Vince read this morning in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through twenty, we're going to focus on maybe an area that we don't always focus on, and it will help make it will help make this point. So we're gonna we're gonna reread Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through twenty, focusing on the God who commands it and how our work and missions is established and enabled by Almighty God. And so just to reread it, and Jesus came and he spake unto them saying, all power or authority, depending on your, your version, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, and even unto the end of the world, Amen. Now, before we go any further, I wanted to interject something that um, I, I'm really not sure after putting it in there if it serves a, a great purpose. But to me, it was interesting and it might be interesting to you. So it's kind of like a little parenthesis. Uh, it, ha- it has to do with what we're talking about. And, and uh, I hope after two minutes of listening to this, you say, oh, that was interesting. And, uh, and maybe you could use it to take it forward. But I wanted to share this little survey with you. Um, it was a survey from this group here, the Barnum Group survey asking churchgoers about the Great Commission. Now, I don't have, I didn't dig into it enough. I tried to, but I don't really know what a churchgoer is by, by this. So uh, I have an idea. It's not a, you know, it's not a solid Bible church, you know, churchgoer person. But this group, uh, this survey was done by the Barnum Group, and they are described as being a visionary research and resource, resource company located in Ventura, California. Started in 1984, the firm is widely considered to be a leading research organization focused on the intersection of faith and culture. Uh, but I'm really not sure the total accuracy of their statistics because you don't know the roots of the people that they, they surveyed. But I believe them to be fairly reliable. You could, you, if you want to right now, you could Google Barnum Group and they do a lots of surveys and, and they're interesting. The challenging part is, you know, what group of people they really uh, you know, survey. But as a lead into their statistics, they say the following. This is how they, they lead into giving you the facts and figures. And I'm going to show you the pie graph in a minute. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is Barnum talking. Is the most well-known biblical record of what is commonly referred to extra-biblically as the Great Commission. And they say that because you don't read the words the Great Commission in the Bible. We know it to be that. And, and the context is clearly uh, you know, a great commission to, to spread the gospel message. But that is extra biblical. But despite the significance of this, of these and other verses that call 
that call Christians to go and make disciples of all nations. This is still Barnum talking, this group. A surprising proportion of church-going Christians in the U.S. are generally unaware of these famous words from Jesus. And here's a pie graph of the result. It would be curious just to see, we certainly wouldn't do that, but it would be curious to see where, you know, Southview statistically would fall in there. And, and so see what you think. Churchgoers, have you heard of the Great Commission? This, this was their question. Uh, this was the question that they, um, they presented to the folks. And I'm not even sure how many. I think it was a thousand, but I'm not positive how many they asked. But, and you can see, they asked uh, churchgoers, have you heard of the Great Commission? 51% said, no, uh, I just don't know. Um, the, the, the big number, yes, and it means 17% were able to say, yes, I've heard of it. And you go to Matthew you know, 28 and, and they uh, either had the verse memorized or they would clearly understood it. And then there was another group that was kind of in the gray area. Yes, but I can't recall the exact meaning. You know, like they heard a, a message on that one day, and, but they really weren't sure of the Great Commission. And so, you know, like I said, I, I'm not really sure if this have, has any significance. Uh, and maybe some of you are, are not surprised at those statistics or and maybe you're surprised it was as high as 17 uh, in, in some groups or not. But uh, to me, it was just... It was just interesting to to see that survey where, you know, so few people, so few people know what the Great Commission is. And I think it's fair to say if you don't know what the Great Commission is, you're probably not doing it or, or you're, you may not be doing a very good job of it. But fact remains, um, you can take that for with a grain of salt. OK, this takes us to Matthew 18, uh, Matthew 20, 18 through 20, where. We look at a familiar verse and we're going to look at something, some part of it that's very mission oriented. I, I, I know all the verses are all, these verses are all mission oriented, but there's two aspects that give us great confidence, that gives us great confidence in, in our mission life. And so, as you focus on Matthew 28, 18 through 20 that you've read many times, as you focus on it one more time and consider the task of reaching uh, reaching every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. Humanly speaking, once again, it's an overwhelming task. But with God, it becomes not only doable, but it becomes unstoppable. And that's such an encouragement to us. You know, this church is a, a gospel spreading, you know, every time there's Wednesday night, every time I hear somebody say, you know, pray for this, I'm doing this, I'm trying to, Share the gospel message with this person or that person. There are every, every week, there are examples of that. And so this is a tremendous encouragement to you. But because it goes on to say, it is over, it's an overwhelming task, but with God it becomes not only doable, but unstoppable. The statement from verse 18 says, All power or authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This you, you read that and you focus on that. It was, what a tremendous reassurance it was to Jesus' disciples the, of the legitimacy of their task. And on down through the line, the, the reassurance it is to us. To us, when, when a disciple is called, they are called to follow the one person in the universe who has all the authority of the universe. There is no one that has more authority. And that's who we're following as followers of this great commission. There's no one else who is worthy of universal allegiance and worship except the one who has all authority. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you go to verse 20. We read verse 20, which I know you've probably read dozens of times. But, but just concentrate on the one aspect, one more aspect. It says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, which reassures Jesus' disciples of the possibility of their task. When we go out into all the nations. Or when you go out into your workplace. Or you go out to the. You know, like the, the, the little girl said. You know you go out into the backyard. To share the gospel message. If that wasn't pretty neat. I, I don't know what was. But she said you can go to the backyard. To preach your gospel. It doesn't matter where you go. 
even to the end of the age, to strength, God is going to be there. He's going to strengthen us. He's going to protect us. He's going to encourage us. And so the two great pillars that we see there is that we're, you, I know this may sound a little crude, but we're working for the, 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 the almighty God that has all the authority that there is. Nothing else is greater. And not only does he have all the authority, that he, it says he's always going to be with us. His presence is going to be with us up to the end, up to the very end. So don't ever stop trying. Don't ever get discouraged. God is in charge of when the end is going to occur. Don't you or I be the one to say, hmm, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think I should spend any more time on that guy. Now, I know we can get in discussions about throwing you know, pearls to swines, and I, that's another discussion. But let, let God make that call, and not, not you and I. Timothy Tennant, quote on, on the Great Commission, says this. And you can read it. Uh, he's a, he's a, for what it's worth, he's the president of Ashburg Theological Seminary. He wrote this in his book, Invitation to World Missions. He said... Before we can speak of the church doing missions, we must first see God as the God of missions. We got to see the God of being, you know, having all authority and always with us. Everything must be founded on and based on his nature, his character, and the initiative of God. Even the Great Commission, arguably, arguably the greatest example of a church called to action, begins with an affirmation of who God is. As, as significant as the role of the church is in missions, and it's, you know, it's invaluable. God is the one that we have to focus on. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Missions begins with who God is. Only then can we be cast as specific duties or responsibilities of the church in the world. Only when we capture a glimpse of the sovereign glory of God, can we properly respond to the imperatives that are given to Christ's church, unquote. That's a, that's a, that's a powerful quote, and, and it's just reminding us, before we get busy doing missions, let's make sure we have our heart act together, and we see God as the one that can accomplish anything, and, and don't limit him. As we conclude our thoughts you know, on the Great Commission passage, remember... It's, it's not clear from the English, but in the original language, it was very clear. It's a command. We're, we're not, it's not a suggestion to go do this. It's a command to go and make disciples. As followers of Jesus, as his disciples, we are to be actively involved in making disciples in some shape or form. Whatever that means for you. Very few people are involved in foreign missions. Uh, and very few people are, you know, are, are pastors. Uh, a few more are elders, and, uh, but every believer is a person who has the, the wherewithal, because scripture says that, to share the gospel message. Maybe it's through your life and maybe it's through a good deed. I don't know. You don't have to be you know, a, a biblical scholar to share the gospel message, but we're to be actively involved in making disciples in some shape or form. And as I've said, for some, I went off my script, but for some that means going across the street to visit a neighbor or talking across the fence or sending a note or serving in a cross-cultural setting. There's so many ways and so many opportunities in front of us. And many of us recently have gone through, you know, uh, have gone through or are going through Pastor Dwight's Discipleship 101 class, which goes into wonderful detail about this topic. Um, that, that, that class just goes a long ways towards preparing you to be confident in sharing the gospel message. So, as the apostles made disciples and disciples made disciples down through the centuries, it has come to us, this generation, to continue the great commission of making more disciples. The last one, the sending father and the sent church. The, the aspect of sending and being sent is extremely prominent in the book of John. And, and once again, I, I know many of you are aware of this because you've read through the, the or taught through the, the gospel of John. It undergirds the whole great commission. It, it, when you read it, it it's kind of like it's, it's, it's building up, it's building up, building up. And the crescendo is in, you know, in chapter, uh, is, is at the end where we read about the great commission. 
Before Jesus commissioned the church to be sent out, the Father had already taken the initiative of sending his own son. John is very, the, the Gospel of John is very sending oriented. It talks about the Father had already taken the initiative to send the Son. The sending principle is also seen in the fact that God is by nature a sender. He's the originator of missions. Missions all begins with the Father sending the Son. The Father and Son sending the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends believers, the church. And we, the church, we, we the local church, sends out witnesses through the world. And that's missionaries. Now, when, when you look... When you look at the book of John and you look at the many passages that talk about and use the verb sent. And, uh, and it's usually one of two ways in the Greek. Not that this is, you know, we spend much time. But pempo and apostello are, are two Greek words that get translated into the English for that mean to send. And what, what's special about those Greek words that make them come alive a little bit more than the English to send is this. Because in the Greek, when we read to send, it just doesn't mean, you know, I'm going to send, uh, I'm going to send, uh, uh, I'm going to send, uh, what can I think here? I'm going to send Bruce, you don't mind. I'm going to send Bruce to Menards and he's going to pick up for me, you know, some nails that I need and some two by fours and, and so on. So I'm going to send Bruce to Menards to pick up some things. You know, and, 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 and that's fine. He'll go do that and get it done. In the Greek, when that word is used, there is meaning to that word send that is significant. And, and if you know that, it adds a little bit more oomph to it. It adds a little bit more to what it says in the English. For instance, when you read, and we're going to look at some of the verses in a second. When you read the, the verb to send, it, there's three things. One... There's, uh, it implies a personal relationship between the person sending and the one being sent. So they know each other. They care about each other. There's a relationship. The person going to go do it, like Bruce, uh, him and I are friends. And he, you know, probably part of it is, you know, Pat asked me to do this and, and I'm going to do it. You know, it, it, that kind of idea. So the Greek word implies a personal relationship between the sender and the one that's being sent. Number two... Is the, is the idea that it means there's a purpose. Uh, and the sender and, and, the, and the one going knows that there's a purpose. And so, uh, like with Bruce again, uh, he knows that there's a purpose for me in sending. He may not know all the details, but he might say something like, well, Pat wouldn't ask me to do this if there wasn't a good reason. You know, that, that kind of background. Now, in, in, the, in the Greek, as we read these in the book of John... There's, there is definitely a purpose for Christ having been sent by God Almighty. And all the other times when it comes up, there's a purpose for it. And then the third reason that is built into that Greek word is that the person that's being, uh, being sent is going to be obedient. They're going to do it. And, and back to our example with, with Bruce, um, you know, I'm confident that he would do that. And he probably wouldn't even think twice about not doing it. He, he says he's going to do it. He's, he's being sent. He agrees to do it. And, and he'll get the job done. And, and that's what we want to read into each of these verbs as we read some of these verses in a second. The father sends the son and the son obeys the father. Christ sends us into the world and we are to obey God as he calls us to whatever service he calls us to. Whatever that is, whether it's you know, overseas missions or whether it's to go into the ministry somehow. But here are some examples. And as you read some of these, you know, just try to have that in the back of your mind about you know, there's a personal relationship. There's, uh, there's a purpose. And there's, all, there's going to be some obedience. And that is a part of the Greek word that we see for instance, in number 3, 638. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And so, you know, when, when, you, when you think of those three things, and you think of Christ doing the will of God, you know, he's being obedient, there's a purpose, and he definitely has a, a personal relationship with the Trinity. Uh, it, it makes those, at least to me, it makes those phrases just really jump out.
somebody counted up there's 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 40 of these uh verses in the book of john where it talks it uses that verb uh to send and so these texts these these ones that you're seeing up there and and uh, the other 33 other ones all culminate in John's great commission-like text of John 20, John 20, 21. It's, it's towards the end of all these verses. Here is the last of 40 occurrences of the title sent one as applied to Jesus in John's gospel. The resurrected Jesus says to his disciples, Peace be unto you, as my Father sent me, so I send you. And, and that's just the... You know, that's the way it's, it's, it works in Scripture. God sent His Son. The Son sent the, the apostles and ordained the church to send missionaries out. And it's incumbent upon us to follow Jesus' example as best we can. And whatever role we have to be imitators of Christ. The entire Bible is about God's mission and His plan for us to be active in missions. The Bible speaks of missions as a service to God. Declaring the gospel to the nation is always the natural fruit of Christian worship. Declaring the gospel to the nations is always the natural fruit of Christian worship. As we worship, we want to spread the gospel message in whatever shape or form God has ordained for us. Creation itself yearns to hear the gospel spoken. The nations so lost that they cannot even see that they're lost. There's people out there that don't even know they're lost. They're, they're, they're clueless. They deeply need God's mercy in the form of missionaries to bring them the gospel, to bring them hope, to bring them the message of Christ so that God can work in the hearts of their people. And I'd like to conclude with this quote. That's simple, but I think pretty profound. I came across this from a Another organization, uh, it's called ABWE, Association of Baptists for World Evangelism. They're a a, a solid fundamental group too. And here's the quote. Missions isn't a vanity project. You You could probably get into each one of these little sayings. But missions isn't a vanity project. And it isn't the janitorial work of ministry. It's the crown jewel of Christian worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your wonderful word. Thank you for the, uh, the encouragement that so many verses have for us to, uh, to be God-honoring missionaries in whatever role that means. Help us to, uh, to consider our role. And if you're a young person out there today uh, who wants to honor God, and, and maybe even right now the still small voice of God is, is whispering in their ear, Or maybe you're a middle-aged, maybe you're an old person like myself. Maybe you're an old person thinking, ah, I'm too old to get involved with missions. Boy, you could could talk to us and and you're never too old to get involved with missions. God, if he's he's calling you to missions, uh, we know he's prepared us. And Lord, so whoever it might be, maybe you're whispering in the the ear of a young person, a middle-aged person, an older person, whatever that might be. Whether they want to be a goer or a sender. Help them to be faithful. Help them to be obedient. Lord, thank you for this time together. In your son's precious name, amen.